Welcome back to the Top Order Podcast. This episode two of our T20 cricketing evolution. We're going to get to the future of T20 cricket and what it means for the global game at the end of this segment of the podcast. We're also going to speak about wicket keepers and are they diminished in the T20 game, as well as fast bowlers and their impact on our new white ball love. All coming up on the Top Order Podcast. Stay tuned. Adam, we would be remiss if we didn't touch on the evolution of wicket-keeping or wicket-keeper batters as we move through the history of T20 cricket before we start looking to the future. We started out with Gilchrist in 2005. We also had um, we had Geraint Jones opening the batting for, for England in that first international T20. How has the role of the wicket-keeper batsman and, in your view, wicket-keeping skill changed over the last 18, 19 years of T20 cricket. Yeah, so I think you take Gilchrist and Sangakara out of the equation because they're two freaks, right? They, they average 50 with the bat, uh, give or take, in their test careers and were excellent glovemen as well. I, I think it's actually diminished the skill of wicket-keeping. I can't recall too many teams that actually genuinely put their best keeper into a T20 lineup and I think obviously there's there's a reason for that you need to be able to balance your sides you, you want your available resources and perhaps the value of a brilliant leg side stumping um, is not as much as um, an amazing catch in the outfield the ability to bowl a couple of overs of dirty offspin in the power play um, and, and perhaps be able to reverse sweep for example the only time I can think of a, a team going in with a genuine keeper was actually England in the, um, I think it was the 2009 World Cup where they picked uh, James Foster for the entire campaign, averaged about 12 with the bat, looked amazing, stood up to the stumps to some of the seamers and, and spinners, but really, you know, wasn't able to impact the game. I think further to that, it's probably also diminished the quality of wicket keeping in international cricket full stop. And you only need to look at the way that teams have now got their T20 keepers um, in the test side because they're able to provide that balance. And I, I think it's really changed um, that skill level. If you go down the list, you've got the likes of um, obviously Rishabh Pant, who actually has kept pretty well for India of, of late, to be perfectly fair to him. Mm. But if mm. you look at the you know the list, you've got Nicholas Porant, not the best keeper in the West Indies. Matthew Wade, not the best uh, wicket keeper in his house, probably. Um, you've got <laughs> Rizwan, who isn't the, you know the best keeper in Pakistan. I think you, you know you'd say that Safraz is a better keeper. New Zealand, all due respect to Conway, not the best keeper in New Zealand. You've got Butler, who does have the gloves in Test cricket, but is nowhere near it someone like a Ben Folks, um, Quinton de Kock. You know, the list goes on, really. So you're not seeing the genuine best keepers playing in those games. You're finding the guy that balances. And that's now linking into the longer form of the game as well. Um, so look, for me, I'm quite sad because I think the advent of such quality spin in T20 cricket... How good would it be if your keeper took all of those chances um, for your spinner? It actually raised the effectiveness of your um, of your spinners. But I, I was thinking about this. I, I think everybody now has to be able to field, and you talked about that in the preamble, the way that these relay catches work. It's almost like they've gone, do you know what? We can miss a leg side stumping. We can miss a diving catch because at some point in this 20 overs, someone's going to fling themselves over the boundary, flick it back up basketball style to someone that's um, just inside the rope. And, and that's our magic wicket. 
um, that in you know days gone by, your keeper might have provided to you with that flash of individual brilliance. So yeah, I, I think it's the one discipline that's probably been diminished um, by the growth of uh, of this uh, this format of the game. And I think we're going to see an evolution in wicket keeping in T20 cricket once we start getting into the future. And I want to talk about the the role of analytics in wicket keeping because I think once you start measuring it, I think you'll start seeing more value in it. We don't measure wicket keeping now very well as a discipline, and I think we rely on batting as a metric for wicket keeping and speaking of batting we just wanted to round out i think raj with one of um your points around batting influencing not only test cricket but odi cricket as well yeah just going back to my musings on batting and the evolution uh, that we've seen over the last uh, 15 15 20 years one thing where i think it's had a positive impact uh, 2020 cricket we've talked about the negative impacts on on test cricket and and certain things like binksy was talking about the keeping there i think it's actually revived one day cricket to to some extent uh you know in the early sort of 2000s the first 10 years of that we had an aussie team that was just so good they had a formula they had a blueprint that worked every time 90 runs through the first 15 keep wicket in hand, wickets in hand to, to the 35 over mark and then dash to close to 300. And then you've got your bowlers to either restrict them in the first innings or squeeze them in the second innings. They were almost unbeatable uh, through a long period there. But when 2020 came around, it was a little bit of a circuit breaker where teams or batsmen realised that they could score 200 runs in 20 overs. They could bat long periods of time chasing 10 runs and over. So I think it, it's had a really positive impact uh, and, and created some really exciting uh, exciting cricket in that one day arena, which was a format that was in danger. Yeah, absolutely. And you started to see big, big totals being scored and chased down in in one day cricket as a result of T20. I remember the game, I think it was at the Wanderers, Australia made 430 and had that chase down by South Africa. In 1995, making 400 runs in a one day international was unheard of, impossible, could not be done. A score of 250 at the SCG batting first was a pretty good one day score. Fast forward 10 years or whenever it was that that Wanderers game was, it might've been 08, 09, that was just that was that was that was done. That was doable, and we continued to see it. And I think that T Twenty batting in particular unlocked that ability for batters to free their minds as well as their skill set. And of course, the evolution of the size of bats and the size of grounds also helps there as well. The thing that interests me in terms of fast bowling, I just want to talk about fast bowling for two minutes before we before we move on to the future of T Twenty cricket, is that we started off with Test bowlers being the guys that would play early T20 international cricket. I mean, that first T20 had all the Australian pace bowlers, it had all the New Zealand pace bowlers, it had all the England pace bowlers. Then we had a little bit of a period where we had some specialist T20 bowlers. We had Dwayne Bravo, we've got still got Chris Jordan. Uh, we had guys like that. Lasith Malinga made himself a specialist T20 bowler. But if we have a look at the dominant forces in T20 cricket now from a fast bowling point of view, they can also all play test cricket. Pat Cummins, Josh Hazelwood and Mitchell Stark all play for Australia. Shaheen Sharafridi plays Test Cricket for Pakistan. Bolt and Saudi play for New Zealand. And uh, England are probably the, the exception that proves the rule. Although you would argue that Mark Wood and Jofra Archer would also be um, in that first choice England Test side uh, other than Stuart Broad and Jimmy Anderson. So I feel like even though there is a role for fast bowling in T20, it's more of a late overs specialist rather than replacing 
fast bowlers that also play test cricket. I found that a fascinating thought process for me when I was thinking about fast bowling in terms of the evolution because fast bowling is a, is a skill that has continued to be successful even for test bowlers because restricting runs in test cricket and restricting runs in, in limited overs cricket is still an important skill even though the deliveries they try to bowl has slightly changed. What do you make of um, guys like Lasith Malinga who, who have really stormed onto the, the 2020 scene Maybe twenty years ago, they wouldn't even have got a got a go uh, because it was it was mm. quite uh, weird, quite out of the ordinary, and didn't fit into that whole test mold. But he's really um, really stormed on or stor- had a great career playing twenty twenty cricket. Yeah, physical difference is a massive benefit in terms of T twenty cricket. You think of guys like uh, Mornay Morkel, who's very very tall, bowls from a great height, can be awkward. Lasith Malinga, the very opposite, very very low, almost below head height in terms of his release point. So. Physical unicorns and players that can bowl from different angles and make life uncomfortable for a batsman are effective because they have just enough point of difference to make it awkward to get out of your, uh, as a batter, your your muscle memory, your kind of instinctive mode that you have when you have to have when you're in T20 cricket. Um, so all of those guys are are the are the addition if you like the the opportunity that t20 cricket provided adam you've raised a great point there there are lots of bowlers that also got an opportunity because they couldn't stay fit for test cricket we mentioned um sean tate is a is a particular example there are many many others as well uh timel mills we we mentioned in a podcast previously so there are bowlers that have been able to carve out a t20 career bowling fast uh, because they couldn't bowl fast in a test match for a, for a 15-over spell. So there has been a range of different roles for bowlers. The thing, the other thing that interests me that I thought was really, really cool was the kind of almost merge between fast bowling or swing bowling and spin bowling, as we've seen it in recent times. So Mitchell Santner, we talked about that holding role. Akil Hussain is a great example of it for the West Indies. Almost bowls like a Derek Underwood-style, uh, either cutting or spinning um, sort of swinging type of delivery at 95 k's an hour, and if you think about the the balls that are effective from Chris Jordan or Dwayne Bravo, the guys that are excellent at the death, they take the pace right off the ball and they bowl similar deliveries. So there is a bit of a merge there between swing bowlers bowling a little bit faster and trying to swing the ball. I guess a spin bowler is doing that, and then the the pace bowlers taking pace right off and having to hit those those wide yorkers. But I reckon for pace bowlers, the skill level's gone up tremendously in the last 10 years for sure. Well, I'll pick up on that because you know it leads back to the point I made about uh, the skill level, and, and I think you made a great point. Um, uh, well, one, the point that the T Twenty cricket has certainly elevated the skill level of all of the uh, of all of the bowling disciplines for sure. Batting, Binksy mentioned, possibly not for wicket keepers, but that's only because they don't get the chance. I think uh, you know if they were if they were in that format, trying to take all of that stuff or trying to keep to all of these different deliveries it certainly raises their game um, but I think Baldy I, w- I just wanted to throw back to you in terms of um, and, and we're kind of looking towards the future I know that's where you want to go but Ish Sodi to me is a great case study of how T20 cricket has changed things for spinners because if you look at uh, even when the start of Ish's career he was a leg spinner which uh, well he is still a leg spinner Um but you think about leg spinners then and even, you know, following on from Warren, they were test bowlers. They were bowlers who came in, they took you wickets, they were attacking weapons because they could be a little bit erratic at times, but they got you wickets. And I think, unfortunately for Ish, 
at the start of his career when he really got his opportunity at test level, he struggled to build that pressure at test level. But he was successful at T20 cricket and he's built his career in that format. So I think that a young spinner now looks at that and goes, that's where I want to excel in the T20 cricket. It's completely different lengths. It's completely different types of deliveries, the way you're trying to get your wickets. You know, in T20 cricket, a lot of the times, you're just trying to get the batter to make a mistake when they're attacking you. You're not trying to get them to, you're not trying to go through the gate. You're not trying to nick one to slip. It's it's completely different. And, and I, I guess when we're looking to the future, if you're a young spinner, I don't see how you can really necessarily try and teach yourself to bowl like the lengths and the deliveries that you need to succeed in test cricket. The, the disciplines are completely different. The A young wristband bowler needs years to perfect their stock delivery. It's it's very, very difficult to, to accurately and consistently bowl a hard-spinning wristband delivery, even the stock delivery. Famously, Bill O'Reilly told Benno it would take him four years. It took Benno four years. Benno told Warne it would take him three. He was so good that he did it in two. But it took Shane Warne as an international cricketer two years to perfect the leg break. We ask wrist spinners to bowl so many different variations now. It's very, very difficult for them to train in a way and develop their game in a way that is evolution of variations on a leg break. We can bowl all sorts of different deliveries, as you say, to get batsmen to make a mistake. But in order to work a batter out in test cricket, it's a completely different discipline. So while we've seen an increase in the number of T20 bowlers around the world, which is fantastic from a wrist spin point of view and great for kids growing and wanting to bowl wrist spin as they come through the game, it doesn't necessarily translate to success in the test arena, particularly if you're a captain or or you have conditions that aren't conducive to those kinds of spinners being able to hit be hit for a boundary in test cricket or one-day cricket um, or even first-class cricket, which often captains aren't tolerant of. So it's going to take an evolution in the mindset of captains and and conditions for wrist spinners in particular to continue to thrive at a first-class and test level because I've got no doubt in my mind that they'll continue to succeed in T20 cricket and in limited overs cricket, but I don't think that that necessarily translates well into the test arena. I just wanted to talk about player empowerment because from 2008 to 2021 there is a massive difference in the way players see their earning potential in cricket and t20 has been a massive massive part of that we know now that players can command a million dollar salary uh, whereas that was unheard of 20 years ago or almost certainly unheard of one of the questions i have do we think that the compressed nature of the cricket calendar now and the money that can be earned from t20 cricket is going to put a squeeze on club versus country like we saw with football maybe 20 years ago when when player earnings started to skyrocket in the football arena? Uh, I'm going to uh, appeal to the romantics out there and say that uh, people still want to play for their country. They still that that is their first uh, when you you know you wake up you, you in the morning you're a, you're a young kid you want to be an all black you want to be a black cat. Uh, I feel that that's still the case. The issue that arises is when you have certain cricket administrations that we've seen over the last few years 
do things incorrectly. Uh, there, there's there's some some great sort of uh, history there around how the uh, West Indian Cricket Board has been has been not paying their players. The South African Cricket Board have not been doing things. It's pushing these guys towards being mercenaries, towards playing 2020 cricket and, and taking that that paycheck. I don't think that that is necessarily something that is widespread i think that the first and foremost people are going to want to pay play for their countries but you're seeing increasingly that people are are leaning towards playing for for their club uh first and that is a danger of of 2020 cricket yeah i think it's almost more a a country versus club um and sort of mindset in that are the countries prepared to pick these players that who opt to play all these franchise t20 cricket leagues around the world you know we've just seen it with Faf you know we talked about it in the New Zealand context with someone like Colin Monroe it's it's about whether the international sides are going to adapt to how actually global cricket is is now because it there are so many leagues and if you don't have a domestic uh, or an, an international contract with your domestic board then certainly somewhere like New Zealand you don't have a much chance to make a huge amount of money in cricket and if you're coming to it's not necessarily even the end of your career it's the the back half of your career how do you you know you want to maximize your potential as a sports person I, I think I think it's actually the the countries that are going to have to adapt rather than the players one of the great one of the great actual uh, one of the great examples of what you're saying there Lippy is the David Warner uh, David Warner playing in the hundred versus going on that tour to Zimbabwe uh, in the end that, that wasn't a choice that needed to be made because of COVID um, thank goodness for COVID uh, but um, yeah so that is something that's increasingly going to come up especially as you say as people get to the back half back half of their career Baldy. My question to follow on from that then is, does that start to put the squeeze on bilateral T20 series now? Do we start to kind of trim, I wouldn't say meaningless cricket, but cricket that's not revenue generating domestic franchise tournaments or a World Cup? Do we start to see less and less bilateral three-game, five-game T20 series in favour of domestic league cricket and, and World Cups, do you think? I want to go one step further, and I'll throw to Binksy because I know we've kind of dominated the chat, and it's, we've already talked about how keepers are getting marginalised uh, in in T20 on the field. So we better not marginalise them on this podcast. But it, it, I'll go a step further and say, you know, how is how is T20 cricket, all of these leagues, is there a place for these series at all outside of world uh, tournaments? You know, will we even bother seeing like ODI series? It certainly seemed like they're getting marginalised around the world. Test series, I, I don't know. I think Baldy, you did some stats on the number of tests that have been played throughout the years. Are we just going to go from, you know, in the future, are we just going to go from T20 League to international ICC tournament to T20 League? Is that going to be the cycle of what cricket looks like? We're, I guess, in a really difficult time right now because we've got all of the scheduling getting compressed with COVID at the moment as well. So um, that's accelerated a lot of things from a global perspective. If you look at, you know, simple things like the the flexibility to work from home, that, that's going to be changed forever. And I think we're probably going to see from a cricketing scheduling perspective, things change forever as a result of what's happened in the last couple of years. Look, I, I definitely think that we're going to see less bilateral ODI and T20 series uh, in favour of 
Um, I, I guess those sort of marquee tournaments from an ICC perspective and then the big iconic test series as well. And, and then the question really is how that flows into the margins of the international game. Uh, look, I know we're going to come on to it, so I'll probably save my piece for that around, you know, what you know what is the future of cricket and what is the highest form of T20 cricket? Because I've certainly got some views on that. But uh, yeah, look, I guess the, the, the thing is, test cricket still from a purist perspective, you're going to tune in and watch your nation play those big iconic series. You can dip in and out of a test match and watch, you know, a couple of hours here or there. I think it's ODI cricket that probably is at the most risk. And um, because quite frankly, who's got time now to watch, you know, six, seven hours of an ODI um, versus being able to get that sort of bite sized, you know, three and a half hours of a T20, uh, which, you know, if you listen to the English cricket boards marketing team is still a little bit too long. And that's why they've lopped 20 balls off each innings. But, you know, that's going to be one of the, you know, the, the key things really that I think we'll see that marginalization of the ODI stuff and um, perhaps before we see those bilateral uh, T20s. But as a tune-up, you're going to play an IPL than a World Cup, right? And that's going to do the job in terms of, um, I, I guess, providing the shop window for those players as well. Yeah, I think we'll have the lead-up games to a major tournament like we saw in the lead-up to this World Cup where we might have teams organising to play each other in a bilateral series to prep for a major tournament. But I think... The days of Australia hosting the West Indies and Sri Lanka in a bilateral triangular tournament are probably gone. Adam, let's stay with you on that question of what is the highest form of T20 cricket now for you? Yeah, so I've put some thought into this as we've obviously prepped for this podcast. And I think I'm hoping it's not just a recency bias thing with obviously the T20 World Cup going on at the moment. I do think as well the scheduling and the split of this IPL latest instalment into two halves, obviously the first half pre-COVID and second half post a little bit um, has helped this argument. But I think that international T20 cricket is the pinnacle now because the players are available for it. It isn't a hit and giggle game. It is a choice that they want to be playing in those tournaments. And I think we talked about it, I think on the last podcast, that the impact of the quality of both bat and ball in T20 cricket means that we're seeing those individual innings of brilliance. Um, you know, we go back, you know, a couple of days ago, David Warner, Rassi van der Dussen playing their really, really dominant um, innings. But then we've also seen some really, really dominant spells with the ball as well. So for me, T20 international cricket is better than the IPL from a quality of cricket perspective. Whether or not it's the same from an entertainment perspective, I, I don't know. But we talked a lot about how the skills have improved. You can't disagree with the fact that this T20 World Cup, we have seen the best 120 players in the world, um, including the, some of those associate nations, your Rashid Khans, etc., playing in this tournament. Uh, and playing against each other when you look at the firepower that some of those teams have, have seen. So for me, um, absolutely T20 international cricket from a quality perspective. So I guess I, I'm going to come at that from a different angle that I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think we've seen the best 120 players in the world because uh, there's probably three Indian teams that didn't make it that probably could have made a real dent in this World Cup who of players who weren't selected. I, I actually think the IPL is, is the uh, the highest form of 2020 cricket at the moment. I think 
the eight teams that we've got, you know, expanding to ten teams, I think the the ratio of really close games to absolute blowouts is a lot less than what we're seeing currently in the World Cup. But uh, there's a there's a piece there around social responsibility around gl- growing the global game where we need to accept some of that. But in terms of the highest form of 2020 cricket, I think that rests with the IPL at the moment. Uh, even the CPL actually, is, is, they're all getting there. The BBL, they're all the IPLs kind of had a head start on those, but. That's where I feel the the highest form of 2020 cricket is. And that's not uh, anything uh, that's unique. You know, you've got the NBA, you've got uh, NHL in in, uh, America, you've got State of Origin, Rugby League. Uh, It's not a unique thing having, uh, you know, club-based or franchise-based sporting uh, competitions being the highest in that field. Well, I was going to throw it to Stu to arbitrate that debate between Adam and Raj. Can you provide a tiebreaker as a New Zealander which is your view on the highest form of T20 cricket as it stands right now I want to sort of move it to um, I'll answer your question but I do want to move it it looking forward and and I think that I I think that um, in terms of what I care about it's much more the uh, the T20 internationals because as we've said, I think that T20 cricket in general and with all of the different franchises, personally, I find it very hard to invest as a fan in any of these franchises. You end up as a fan becoming a fan of players, which actually is happening all around the world in leagues that Raj just mentioned. You know, you see it in the NBA where players get traded all the time and players become the 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 thing that people actually follow rather than a team. You don't get invested. Whereas at least in international cricket, you care about your nation and the the side that you want to support. So that's always been the biggest part of sport for me. I think in terms of actual quality, it probably is the IPL in, t- in, in terms of where, where the best 120 cricketers play. But I think these semifinals that we're about to see that might be just about done by the time this podcast comes out... We are going to see the real elites, and that's where you get a side where there are no there are no players. You see in the IPL a little bit where there are three or four players who don't, ne- or at least a couple probably, who don't necessarily have a role in the side. They're sort of there as backups if someone at one of your big guns fail. Whereas I think in the the real top international sides, everyone's got their role, everyone's got a job to do. And we really see the best of the best. So I think I've pr- kind of uh, <laughs> sat on the fence a little bit there, but hopefully it's kind of made sense. But I mean, let let's loop it back to finish the podcast with kind of the future and and around to you guys to answer my question and and disagree with me or agree with me that T Twenty cricket is the most important format in the world right now. I think it is going to remain that way. You know, we haven't talked a lot about uh, women's cricket in this podcast, but I think it's certainly the format that's getting women's cricket the most coverage. It's certainly the cricket that is getting, uh, you know, we think about the Commonwealth Games is going to be in 2022 when we talk to Katie Martin. That's a big driver for for her to, to go on to that World Cup and sort of be a part of that. When we talk to Daniel Bezik, he talked about international cricket. If it gets to the Olympics, it'll be in this T20 format or some T10 or some some kind of limited overs format that really gets it to a global market. It, you know, 
can these other formats survive, I guess? And is there going to be any sort of format where any sort of time in the future where T20 cricket or some iteration of T20 cricket is not the number one format of the game? I think it's a very interesting question. I can see one day international cricket in particular being marginalised moving forward as a result of the popularity of both franchise and international T20 cricket. I think there will be a place in everyone's heart for the one day international World Cup as there will be a place in everyone's heart for T20 World Cups. I think this one in particular has shown us that there is passion behind T20 cricket and it's a fantastic vehicle for growing the game. I think that the future of bilateral series, particularly ODI series, is in real trouble. I don't think that's a bad thing necessarily, but I think the the calendar of cricket will revolve around test series and franchise T20 cricket and then the appropriate World Cups as, as the ICC fit to schedule those in. Does anyone necessarily disagree with that point or, or has anything to add? So I guess for me, again, you know, you mentioned the word what's important. It, it's subjective depending on what the motives are. I can see the points there around engagement, getting people excited about cricket, interested in cricket, uh, which leads people to watching games and ultimately leads to more money coming into the game. Uh, 2020 cricket is inconsistent. Uh, you know, we've had the emergence of those associate nations, which genuinely have a chance to upset uh, those, you know, bigger playing nations on any given day. And it, it can happen and will happen in the future. Uh, what, but what to me is, is more important is when I think about cricket, what do I actually remember? And I remember the, you know, the, those Michael Clark taking those three wickets at the SCG against India. I remember Rishabh Pant chasing down uh, that, that innings um, in Australia last season. I remember the 2005 Ashes. Uh, I remember Santner even taking that uh, last Pakistani wicket. Uh, those are the things that, that stick in my mind, and including things like this is the one which brings a tear to my eye a little bit, is Graham Smith coming out to bat at number 11 against Australia um, and trying to see off that Australian attack with Mitchell Johnson. Those are the things that stick in your mind. You, you know, you see Kieran Pollard hit an incredible 80 uh, to win that game at, uh, the 20, at the IPL this year. Uh, that's great. It's amazing. It was, you know, 40 minutes of great batting. But I, lo- I want to see these, these moments in Test cricket. They're what stay with me. And I think, for me, that's why it's more important. But I can definitely see your points around that's where the game is going. But for me, I think the rusted on fans, which are probably the people listening to this podcast, that's where I think that they want to see the um, the importance placed on cricket. I find myself in a difficult position in that I'm about to agree with Raj. So his sentiments are almost exactly the same as mine. Commercially, there's no doubt that T20 cricket is the most important format of the game when you purely look at dollars, cents, TV revenue and probably most importantly the growth of the game from a global perspective but if I'm going to get up in the morning and go to Lords, it's going to be for a test match and I would take the first morning of any Lords test match versus any T20 game that you want to put in the history of cricket so far. And that includes World Cup finals that England have been part of um, in 2010 um, and then that heartbreak in, in 2016. But look, I I think I'm ultimately going to be a purist and that's the most important format of the game for me and will be till I die. Um, but there's no doubt that T20 is going to overtake it in our lifetime from a commercial and from an importance to the growth of the game perspective, I reckon. 
Well, chaps, that just about wraps up our evolution of T20 cricket. Thank you guys for walking down memory lane for the last 20 years of the evolution of T20 cricket. Lots of change, but still some work to do for T20 to win over even the most rusted on members of this podcast. Thank you very much for joining us on the Top Order podcast. Stay tuned for lots more This Week in Cricket, Hall of Fame, and of course, previews of our upcoming test summer as well. But for now, from all of us here at the Top Order podcast, take care of yourselves and each other. (laughs) 